Welcome to Martial Wisdom. Here you can listen to conversations on all kinds of topics related to martial arts. The topic for today's show is, what is Aikido missing and where did it go wrong? Joining me in this conversation is Oliver Martinez. Before we start, please consider supporting the show. You can subscribe to the Spirit Aikido Online program, which currently contains more than 190 videos. Another option is to contribute any amount you like through the PayPal tip jar. Even small contributions are greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, on with the discussion. So I want to welcome back Oliver Martinez, a good friend of mine, fellow Aikido instructor down in the Dallas area. We have a very interesting topic today. Before we get into it, though, I want to apologize. I've been busy with my wife and I moving from house to house this last few weeks, so I've not been keeping up as much as I have on conversations and producing content, so I want to apologize for that. Uh, we're still coming out of boxes, uh, but we're set up and ready to go, and we're going to have a great conversation today. So uh, welcome back, Oliver. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, it's a great to be back. I love, uh, I love the way you do things. You're like, hey, you want to you talk Aikido? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And then three <laughs> hours later, we're up here. We're doing it. I, exactly. I couldn't be a better format. I love yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. And um, the topic that I wanted to choose today is kind of a, a, an overall one, which is what is Aikido missing? And kind of as a second part of that is where did Aikido go wrong? Like where, where did these absences or gaps come from? Were they always there? And if not, maybe how do we get them back? How do we address this? And, you know, I, I know, I think it's pretty much universally accepted that Aikido, modern Aikido has got some problems, uh, whether it's an image, image or reputation problem, or, you know, we, we're missing techniques or uh, training type principles that that are, are that are present in other arts but are absent in ours and what i really want to do is is maybe start listing off and identifying some of those so we can think about them in terms of which ones do we want to fix either individually and i think everything comes down to individually if you're an instructor you're thinking okay what can i do to improve the aikido, my aikido and the aikido of my dojo and my students like that is the beating heart of a martial art it's Absolutely. not what we can do all everybody has to do it's what each person wants to take on. And there are some things where, where you know, a practitioner might say, you know, this is just not important to me. Um, and I can say personally, for me, one of the ones that I've sort of pushed aside is doing a lot of weapons work, uh, specifically sword disarms, Joe disarms. Um, I do a little bit with kata, but I'm pretty honest with my students to say, you know, if you come in and you see the weapons on the wall, don't think that I'm going to turn you into a weapon fighter or a stick fighter or a sword fighter or anything like that. We, we have these here, we do work with them a bit, but they're not a main part of the, of the training. If you really wanna get weapons training, you'll need to find an art that's, that is heavy in the weapon work. Um, and so, you know, it's all defining like really what you wanna do and what, you, what you're presenting to your students and to your prospective students. What yeah, do you think man, that it? could be an entire podcast right there. Oh yeah. Just the weapon. It should be your next one. Find someone who's really good at weapons and, and dive into that with them. That, that would be awesome. Exactly. In fact, I'm I mean, going to write that down and put it on the list. Yeah. I look forward to hearing that one. That's, yeah, that's, that's really good. Actually. A lot of content. Yeah. I wish I could do more for you on that one, but you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, actually when you, when you shot me the message, one of the, uh, and you, you said the topic was, you know, what is Aikido missing? One of the first things that came to my mind is I really want to frame that appropriately because when you and i talk about aikido um i know you well enough to know that there's something that we mean when we say that 
and I don't want to take it for granted. What we, what we mean is Aikido, we both believe it is a viable system of offering self-protection skills. Mm-hmm. We, we both believe that and that is of interest to us. So when, we, when you say, what is Aikido missing? What we mean is, what is missing to keep us from getting those self-protection skills to their full um, potential? Sure. But for somebody who's not really, like you said, who might not be interested in that, maybe they like the historical aspects of it. Maybe they like the, um, if you're lucky enough to be at a school where, where it is a very physical training, um, maybe it's just the social aspect. Some people may not care about the, the self-protection aspects. Mm-hmm. That is perfectly fine. But just so that we frame the conversation for people who are listening, mm-hmm. when we say what's missing, we mean specifically those things that would make us uh, more potent as a self-defense system. Um, and that you could also we define that as a well-rounded martial artist. A well-rounded like, martial artist. I think that yeah. would be, oh, that's an even better way. Yeah, see, yeah. that's why you have to collaborate. Sure. Better stuff yeah, yeah. comes out of it, yeah. And, you know, you always with, with that, you can get into the weeds of, okay, well, if you're, for example, you're a tremendous boxer, like amazing boxer, do you really need to know how to deal with kicks or not? Maybe not. You know, maybe if you're Mike Tyson and in one hip turn, you can take someone's head off. Perhaps you don't need, you know, the other more well-rounded aspects of general hoplology or general Mm. personal combat, or if you call it defense, you know, that gets in the philosophical area too, where, you know, you're not engaging in dueling or physical combat because you want to but because you want to protect yourself and there's that could be yet another another whole podcast is the yep. realms of of martial engagement which are drastically different um you know even in the within if you take out sport within the reality realms of martial arts there's a difference between a police officer for example who has to restrain who has to capture and restrain somebody there's a difference between uh, that and a for example a bodyguard or a bouncer who has to protect the club and the, and the customers, uh, the business. I mean, these all have kind of profound effects, but, and I think each one of those, if you asked a police officer, well, the skills that a good police officer has for apprehension and restraint will be different from a bouncer. So what a bouncer skills have, a police officer might be missing and vice versa. So when, yeah, when you're right, when we're saying missing. Note, yeah. yeah, to that note, we'll, what about a mental health professional who has to restrain their client? That's going right. to, but on the surface, it all looks the same, right? Well, right. it's restraint tactics. Exactly. Well, that's not, you know, there's, there's a, there's a spectrum there. So or that's a soldier, like say, a Marine, like his absolutely. martial arts going to be much di- far different from a police officer or a bouncer, or mm-hmm. I think the bouncer and the police officer is pretty similar, but the Marine is off the chart in a whole nother realm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure even they would say, depending on the mission, you know, that's going to mm-hmm. be different as well. So that's why yeah. I say, when we say what is missing, I would like to get as specific as we can. One, so that we're not picking fights that don't exist. You know, we're right. not creating fights where there are none. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two, just so that our conversation can be a little more narrow and, sure. and, uh, and, well, and, and maybe the, the logical next step then would be provide a definition, at least a personal definition of, of what our Aikido is meant to be. And that is, it's not a Marine. It's not a police officer, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a bouncer might be pretty close because you're kind of protecting territory and you're protecting mm-hmm. other people like you and I average person 
are going to protect our families. We're going to protect ourselves and we want to protect our home or our property. And therefore our rules of engagement are pro probably going to be pretty similar as to what a bouncer might, might do. You intercede in something that you see as a physical problem or a threat and you do it elegantly without causing excess damage. Cause that'll get, you know, in, in the bouncer's case, it'll get the bar sued uh, or get him to lose his job, what have you. So I think, the definition for me personally of what I want from my Aikido is to be my own bodyguard, to be my family's bodyguard to a certain degree and to be able to protect myself and, and my family and my friends and my community against the most likely threats that I'm probably going to encounter, uh, which is not going to be, you know, necessarily a truckload of AK 47 toting mm -hmm. terrorists. Um, nor is it going to be, you know, Brock Lesnar or, or, or some sport right. fighter in a ring either. Um, and so to me, when I really looked at, at overhauling my curriculum that I inherited with Aikido, I wanted a firm definition. Why, what am I doing and why am I doing it? And that's where I ran across what is missing. Mm -hmm. And I think this is part of this conversation of when you define what's missing, if you don't have a definition of what you want your Aikido to be, you'll never know whether something's missing or it's not. There's no criteria. Because I want um, the Aikido that was taught to me passed down in the broadest way possible. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is I want a police officer to find something valuable to them. I want mm -hmm. a lawyer to find something valuable to them. So kind of what I've landed on was, well, we want it to be martially viable. Mm -hmm. And uh, so these past few weeks i've actually been thinking really hard about like all right what what do i mean by that martially viable mm -hmm. and and sort of the the place i landed on today could be different by the end of this conversation i hope it is different by the end of this conversation <laughs> but where i landed on it was is your aikido and this is going to sound really like duh to any like martial artists out there but I, but i think it has has to at least start here does your aikido take into account the other person's responses because I think if you look at a normal Aikido demonstration, and it is a demo, I'm not slamming you by their, their demonstrations, but if you look at a normal Aikido demonstration, the thing that puts off the alarm, I think, in our heads that goes, like, that doesn't look quite right, is there, it's not just that the UK is not punching them. It's not, you know, mid-technique. It's not just that the UK is not resisting. Because I've seen all kinds of demos that are like that from combat mm -hmm. sports things like that. But it's that the Nage isn't even taking those things into account. Mm -hmm. So he's not putting himself in a safe spot. He's not, um, he's not making pains to, to make sure that limbs are accounted for and trapped. Um, there's no taking into account that the guy could get back up. Like the, Zan, the Zanshin's not there. Mm -hmm. So I think when we see that, just as a martial artist, you go like, something's not right. And then it's easiest just to jump to like, well, that's, that's nonsense that I'm looking at. Right. But then we don't take the next step to, to what you're asking is like, why is it nonsense? And, and what I've, this really triggered for me about a month ago. I saw a video on Instagram of a guy doing a Nikio, you know, the cross wrist grab Nikio on a guy. Mm -hmm. They're in street clothes and he does it really fast and really hard. And so it looks physically kind of impressive, but the guy is standing right in front of his UK. Mm -hmm. And when the UK lands, he's right below him, basically mm -hmm. on the same line. Mm -hmm. And my alarms are just going off like, wait, wait, why don't I like that? And then three seconds later, you go like, 
because he has done nothing to neutralize that guy's response to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of sent me down this rabbit hole of going, okay, well, when we say something is martial or not, I'm not even saying that we address it necessarily because you can't address everything, mm-hmm. but do you just acknowledge it? Do you just mm-hmm. acknowledge that hey, um, there, there's a problem here? And I ran across a video of Saito Sensei from like maybe the late 70s, early 80s. It was a really wonderful video because he's doing a classical form. He's doing a Riminage. It's mm-hmm. classical as you can imagine Saito doing it. Mm-hmm. But he has this quick discussion. He goes, if I hold them here, they can just step out. If I hold them here, they can't step out as long as I'm strong enough to contain them. And if I hold them here, their balance is broken and they're not going to escape. So within 10 seconds, he acknowledged what this other person had available to them. And I was like, see, even without modification, even the most classical form, what makes it martial or not martial is just acknowledging that this other person's got things that they can do. And then, like you said, troubleshooting those things. Right. So that's kind of where I've landed on that whole idea. You know, it's funny when, as you mentioned that uh, the alarm bells, as you watch a demonstration, Mm -hmm. you know, I I know one of the efforts that seems to have been going the last year, a couple of years is, and I don't know who, who exactly these people are, and I don't really want to call them out by name specifically, but I'm sure everybody's seen it where somebody will take Aikido practitioners, very clearly Aikido practitioners, and they'll put them in street clothes and they'll make like a little movie. Like how this is how, how a real life, how this, how Aikido would look in real life. And really Mm -hmm. all they did was change the background. Like they're on a bus or they're in a subway Mm -hmm. or they're in a back alley or they're on a sidewalk and the practitioners are dressed in jeans and t-shirts and leather jackets instead of geese and Hakama, because you see those same alarm bell things, Mm -hmm. even though they're trying to portray the movie and it looks very demo demo demo-y. In yeah. that the movements are all really clean and crisp and and it's kind of like the um and i would say the best example of this is done superbly uh, is the john wick movies they are all pain painstakingly choreographed but they are done but with such skill not only skill by the martial artists which are the stuntmen and the and the actors but filmed in such a way to make it look like it's not choreographed but mm-hmm. anybody knows that you cannot have that level of athleticism going on for what are those fight scenes like 10 minutes yeah with and have everything go perfect for for nage right if you are not choreographing that and so it, it's it, it the same kind of a thing and that's where i i appreciate the the crispness and the clean demonstration of technique because it's so it's almost pure but it's so pure that it's unreal and that's right. that I think is kind of the image problem. And, and um, I know Steven and I talked about maybe doing a podcast on the unsolvable um, marketing problem, which is how do, yeah. you portray, how do you portray an art which is supposed to, which is focused on like a real world self-defense application without having it appear fake like in a demo or that you don't actually have a venue to see it like you would in a sport fight. Cause you've got cameras everywhere in sport fights. So you have, you know, you have that realm to see the results. Cause everybody, you know, now with the internet, everybody is like, it was, they were born in Missouri. Have you ever heard that, that <laughs> phrase of show me Missouri yeah. is called the show yeah. me state, like prove it, prove, prove what you can do or prove what this is about. And, um, and that's the thing is, 
there are a few real world uh, surveillance videos where we've seen things like code, code gash used in, uh, in, in a real application or hip throws or all kinds of different techniques, but they don't look clean and crisp like a demonstration yes. does. And that's often where we miss the mark with lay people or those who don't see the crucial ingredients that make something like a tenshinage or a, you know, a technique that's looks kind of sloppy, but it gets the job done. Um, right. You know, and that's, and that's something where, again, if you define what is missing, um, you know, you, you come across, well, you can, you can say, okay, well, what are the things that, that Aikido does not do or does not train or does not want to address? And I'd say the first one that hits me on that list is real attacks that are commonplace. Um, and I find that the argument that, well, a yokeman is just like a, a, a haymaker. Like, I don't think it is. If you lead with the elbow instead of leading with the, the shoulder and the fist, that's a pretty significant difference. Even though the arc of the attack is still an arc, there are some notable differences. And, and the approach that, that I've taken to try to solve that problem is I want my students to know exactly what a haymaker looks like and they can identify it instantly. There's no, wait a second, is that, you know, what is that? It's different from what I'm used to. Um, because from a training perspective, you want to get as close as you can to seeing what you're going to see in the real environment or where you want to actually perform. And so that includes- my teacher, Bill Sosa, uh, when he would run uh, tests mm-hmm. or even teach a class, even teach a class or seminar, Yokoman's a great example. He would teach the classical Yokoman mm-hmm. and he would also teach a hook punch mm-hmm. and he would teach them both. Which is interesting because if they were the same, you wouldn't need them both, right? right. You pick one, right? Mm-hmm. This one or that one. They're, they're the same, you know? Or you would teach one this day and one this day, and, and they're interchangeable. But he would mm-hmm. teach them almost paired. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I'm older and I'm, I'm, you know, a few decades removed from the way he was teaching that at the time, I really understand. I, I think he was trying to walk the line between going, this is what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. but if he would go into another Aikido organization or another school, and he was often called into schools that maybe weren't in our organization or who had come from other organizations, mm-hmm. you also have to be able to speak their language. Right. Right. So I didn't understand that or appreciate it at the time, but I, I, I really do now. I, I, I really appreciate the idea that he was able to go like, look, this is what you have been taught but what this would most likely look like is this mm-hmm. the vector is the same but there's some different considerations that you have to deal with and there's some different intensities that you have to deal with mm-hmm. um and i think if you had just chosen just the haymaker i think in a way you shut down your ability to communicate with the rest of the aikido world mm-hmm. you know because then you're walking in and, and you and i take this for granted we really do at this point um but you could go into a certain Aikido school, show a haymaker, and it would be a, like a counter to it. It would be a useless exercise because no one would be able to do the haymaker, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, I see, I've seen it less now. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it much less now. But uh, several years ago, you would see people go like, well, here's Aikido versus a jab cross. And then the UK would go like that. You know, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. well, <laughs> A for effort, I guess. Sure. Um, but Heart's that's right neither, 
Yeah, that's neither a jab nor a cross. Like you're just mm-hmm. kind of spazzing your hands out in front of you. Mm-hmm. And so by the same token, you could go like, well, an Aikido person needs to know how to counter a jab cross. But if you did maybe two, to throw one. you got to throw one first. So maybe you start with, well, I'm going to push you with this hand and push you with that hand. Mm-hmm. We know those vectors. We know those attacks. Right. Um, and then and then you go like, now here's another way that might look. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm torn. Because I'm like you, I tend to spend more time on, um, like, for example, I don't really teach uh, Munetsuki anymore, mm-hmm. like the, the Oyozuki karate style punch, right. but I do teach a shove to the chest. Yeah, because yeah. to me, I'm like, that's, that's an identical mm-hmm. energy that essentially you're going to be dealing with. And the other side of that is if it were a real Oyozuki from like a really talented karate practitioner, mm-hmm. you're not catching that hand anyway. So, right. you know what I mean? It's like a double-edged sword. Like, sure. So for us to make that Oyozuki work in an Aikido context, you have to do it badly. You but, know, one of the, yeah, one of the differences, not that is Aikido definitely has a lot of bad attacks. And that's, I, I think we'll cover that in a second, because there's one thing I did want to jump in there with that I found as I started breaking down, what is the difference between a haymaker and a yokeman? Not in terms of the attack as much, but for Nage, what's the difference? If, as we were normally taught, and I, I was taught this, and I've seen this so many, so many places taught across the Aikido world, is you bring that Yokoman back, this is the signal you're looking for that mm-hmm. tells you which side that, that attack is. So this is a telegraph. You're bringing it up, telegraphing it early. If you get used to watching for this hand, and that roundhouse comes and it leads with the shoulder instead, and the roundhouse comes behind it or the what, whichever, what you're training nage to do is watch for a signal that may not be there mm-hmm. in reality so yeah. what i found is i train my ukes or train my uh, my students to watch for that shoulder to drop back that's the signal and it's the same whether somebody brings their hand up or not so if you're watching for the shoulder you'll catch yokemans you'll catch mm-hmm. haymaker swings whatever they do whatever that p- attack is that comes next you're gonna at least pick it up but if you're not watching for the shoulder, if you're watching for this nice, huge, big signal to come out, mm-hmm. you might miss what you really should be looking for. Um, so I found that that covers, covers the Yokomen and the angles don't really change much, whether somebody is throwing a, that haymaker or throwing the Yokomen, the techniques are pretty much the same. So see, to me, the interest in what that is, is not necessarily, um, I, just, I was fortunate to be able to talk to my buddy Ian Abernathy recently on a podcast. Mm-hmm. And we, we were kind of talking about not throwing away the tradition as we try to move forward. And right. that was kind of the crux of it. And so to me, what you're saying there it perfectly feeds into that because you're not talking about choosing either or. Like that's a class. That's a lesson plan. Right. Like here's how it is classically taught. You'll note mm-hmm. that if the hand comes up, the shoulder goes. Mm-hmm. And then your next phase of that drill goes. Now remove the hand, but keep the shoulder. Right. And what you have there is a training progression. When you have a good, interesting training progression, a couple of things happen. One, you make better martial artists, mm-hmm. I think, versus just saying, this is the thing. This, yep. is, this is the attack. This is what you're working with. Mm-hmm. If you have a progression, then you have somebody who understands the fundamentals of movement, what they're looking mm-hmm. at. Right. And then two, I just think there's more interest in that. I think there's more interest in somebody being able to go like, how is this classically taught versus what do I need? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it gives you some dimensionality as an instructor to go, I walk into a, 
a really traditional school, like I can, I can play their game yeah. too, you know, yeah. without, without raising too many uh, flags on their part, you know, like mm -hmm. I can do that. Um, or if I go to some people who've never done Aikido and they want to go like, well, what's this about? You go, well, okay, you guys know this haymaker, like here's something you can do, but you can kind of walk both worlds and you can communicate to a broader audience. Sure. I think is very important to address the thing that you talk a lot about is Aikido's identity problem. You know, mm -hmm. most of the time Aikido people are just talking to Aikido people. Right. That's it. Well, what happens is that Aikido people start to dwindle. Yeah. Your audience is going to start getting smaller and smaller and, right. you know, we're going to have a problem. And that brings into the, the other related topic, I guess, which is, you know, where did Aikido go wrong? Like where did that path start to vary into a practice that has lost some, some good fundamentals. And I would count watching the shoulders as part of reading the body as a good fundamental of any combat. Like if that's where you're going to look, if you need to read a body, in fact, you know, uh, a lot of the eye slots on older, the medieval helmets were really narrow. You didn't have enough gap to be able to read hips or legs or feet. You could just see basically the head and the shoulder area. That was all you could, you needed to read somebody if you really knew what you were doing. Of course, these were people who lived combat and were trained, you know, rigorously that had, you know, helmet that would have that much coverage. But when you can read the shoulders, you can read just about everything else where the, where the body mechanics are going when that shoulder drops back you know the hips are, are are ready to turn they're loading up the legs that to me is sound martial arts period it doesn't matter what style you're you're doing um and you don't want to drop your eyes and look down at the feet you know because then you lose track of the, the head and and what the upper body is doing things like that but um and this is where i guess i'd cross into wanting Aikido to exist in that realm of solid martial art principles, regardless of, you know, what name you put on it for what art, what art, what art it is, or, you know, that doesn't really matter. Um, it's, are you using sound principles? Well, I think that's definitely like, you know, what's interesting about like what you just said is if you see somebody's shoulder load, you might not necessarily know whether it's going to be a punch, whether it's going mm -hmm. to be, uh, indexing a weapon, whether he's going to be kicking, mm -hmm. whether he's going to be picking something about like, you, you don't know. Right. So like, that's kind of that first thing is you realize like something is happening. Right. And you're, you're react, you are acting or reacting to something happening, not that thing happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And you certainly so, don't want to wait to find out what's going to Find happen. out what that thing is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you sit around and wait, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. At, at our Academy, we talk a lot about, uh, timing so i've i've mm -hmm. i've done a fair bit of cross training uh and everything informs my aikido in some way or the other but one mm -hmm. of the biggest revelations was when i was training pakiti tertia they've got this wonderful model for timing okay um it's super simple i say it's simple there's complexity in it but on the face it's simple and it's easy to grasp mm -hmm. and they basically go like this when someone does something it is either ahead in timing even in timing with the other person or behind in timing relative to the other person. And so the, you, you want to ask like where we kind of maybe went wrong. And I, that's a really big question, but I can at least acknowledge what would be wrong. Any martial art anywhere, anytime. If your art is built around being behind in timing, there's going to be a hole there. That's right. going to be really, really tricky. Mm -hmm. Um, well, because action beats reaction, that. that's a common 
thrust of, or common principle of strategy. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I would think that might be the first Marshall idea. And again, when you remember my earlier definition of, of acknowledging another, basically just acknowledging another human is involved mm -hmm. in this, right? Mm -hmm. um, by acknowledging that they have a timing and then you have to problem solve that timing, already you're making steps to being more Marshall because the way we normally approach Aikido is that the other person's timing is kind of irrelevant. You know, like they're, they're two arm lengths away. They're going to make a nice big telegraphed movement. So I can physically be slower than that person and still make my technique function. Mm -hmm. But once we close that gap a little bit, even a little bit, mm -hmm. if I'm waiting too long to see which technique is manifesting, that puts you on the behind in timing. Right. Stuff's going to start going south real quick but and if i we think the, said, the, the japanese language of that timing if i've got this right is that the go no sen sen and sen no sen which is basically responsive uh match timing or or initiative or or preemptive timing right um which and this i guess gets into the training part kind of like we were talking about earlier is if you look at aikido as primarily reactive where the attacker and this is kind of i guess the best argument or best defense for including this in training, and it does, in my opinion, need to be there, which is you are in a total ambush situation. You are suddenly notice an attack that's already formed. It's coming at you and you need to respond. I think that any martial art has for self-defense has to include that possibility because Absolutely. it's a very real possibility. Mm -hmm. However, kind of like, like BJJ turning all into groundwork from the back, you can't have that be the, your entire art of waiting for an attack when you don't have to, like mm -hmm. if you're ambushed and you're surprised and suddenly, and I've seen this firsthand where, you know, I saw a guy look and there was a dude launched at him with a leading with a fist and he had a, like a split second to possibly move. Of course he didn't. And he just got overwhelmed. Sure. Um, so th that can actually happen. And so training for the, I'd call it training for the ambush training for the, I got totally surprised, caught unawares, and now I need to move quick and make a, an instant decision and move and train to do that like a trigger. However, I would say that that is probably, and I'm just going to guess at this, maybe 10 to 20% of the likely scenarios that you would probably encounter. The other 80% are you have an inkling something's wrong. You have a chance to problem solve how to deal with with it maybe by avoiding it entirely maybe you try to avoid it but can't but you see the problem coming you get to see the attack start to form and you have a chance to intercept it before it actually forms up to be a bad you know already uh, moving towards you uh, and so i would think that training should reflect that those percentages where you know you can you can act preemptively most of the time but i would say at least in my experience in training with aikido in general and what i've seen of it it is all that responsive or reactive uh what would it be the go no sen where you i'll be honest with you i've almost completely abandoned that model I, i've gone almost yeah, yeah. completely to the bikini model okay You're either ahead in timing even in timing or behind in timing right sure. but so the model might be the same i just right. i'm not as familiar with it you know right. um well, and this is, I, I've heard a lot of Aikido people kind of reel against the idea of, of initiating the attack when 
the opportunity presents itself. And I've, I've never, I've rarely ever seen it on the mat where Nage gets to initiate. I've seen it a few times and taught it, even taught it a few times um, just to get across the point of you don't have to wait if you have made the determination. And this is the hardest thing in the world to, to train in a dojo is when do you morally, when are you morally justified making that choice of I need to initiate physical action? here based right. on what's going on and because now you're getting into role playing and that's tricky because people including myself are not good actors <laughs> yeah that's the hardest that's absolutely going to be the hardest hardest yeah. part of it so the funny right. thing about that the initiation versus response is if you look at budo the 1938 book that Yosensei mm -hmm. did the first thing he teach uh, in that book there's like 50 discrete lessons basically mm -hmm. 50 lessons lesson one is hominy basically he's just showing how do you stand right Mm -hmm. I think lesson two is a mm -hmm. how to enter. And these are like, again, conceptual. They're, they show techniques, but it's very clear. Like he's showing you like building blocks, foundations. Then he shows Tenkan. He mentions a Remy Tenkan and says like not pictured here. Okay. But then the first actual technique that he shows, it's Shomenuchi Ikkyo, but he is initiating. Mm -hmm. So that's the very first technique he shows is you initiate the action. Uh, the second technique he shows is the Tenkan variation of Ikkyo. And if you read the description, it's because the Uke initiated. So look, within yeah. the first two movements, you have kind of a, a blueprint for the way you should be approaching your training. There, mm -hmm. there are things that will happen when you are ahead. Mm -hmm. There will things that will happen when you're even or behind. Mm -hmm. And if you look the rest of those 50 movements you can see very clearly like okay he's ahead he's ahead he's behind and you start to see like why might you do one thing versus versus another thing so sure. like what you said about um you know initiating or you know uh, working the percentages mm -hmm. that alone if you just trained that said in this instance uke is going to go first but in this instance nage gets to go first mm -hmm. that alone will start putting you on a more kind of martial mindset sure. because you're just acknowledging the possibility here are some mm -hmm. things that can that can happen you know you know that brings up a really good point and this is something that that i i felt was a deficiency that i wanted to address in my own aikido and a lot of this had to do with kind of my personality and even with with my old instructor's personality and we were great friends but very different he was more of an introvert and i a little bit more extroverted or assertive, I guess I would say. And I, so I like going after things. So a Remy techniques really resonated well with me where I was able to learn was the 10 con, which is the patience, mm -hmm. letting things kind of happen, uh, getting out of the way. But where I came to this was when, like how, do, what is the definition of when you use a and when do you use 10 con? And this is where I think, uh, there's something majorly missing, or I should say imbalanced within Aikido. And that is most Aikido practitioners, whether their personality is assertive or not, tend to do more Tenkan and give way than use Irimi. Now, as you pointed out, if somebody's already coming into you, uh, they've initiated an attack, then usually Tenkan is a more appropriate expression because you don't want to collide with them. What I feel is missing is the I have enough strength or I have the initiative. I'm going to move. I'm going to take the center line or I'm going to move a because I can, 
I'm not going to give it up just so that I can turn TenCon and give, therefore, give my attacker the initiative or give them an opportunity that I could have taken away merely by entering. So the, and, the way we, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And so what I see though, from, from the standpoint of, let's say you practice 10 con 80% of the time and you practice Arimi 20% of the time, your 10 con is going to be strong, but you may question whether or not your Arimi is strong enough. So really your training and, and your mental approach should favor neither one. You should not have a favorite. It should just be, what is the right tool for this particular opportunity? Um, and that, that is to the balance of strategy. If, if you know, your Aikido is too balanced to Arimi or too balanced to Tenkan, then it's going to be a, a, a potential issue because you may give up on a good opportunity or go to your favorite tool when it's not the right one. Yeah, the way we define that at our academy is, or the, the way we approach that is Arimi is preference. You want mm -hmm. Arimi. So, and the reason you want Arimi is because that means to do Arimi, you'd have to be ahead in timing. Right. And you definitely want to be ahead in timing. Uh, Absolutely. My, one of, my colleague teacher had the best way of, of, of defining that too. He said, if they're reacting to you, you're ahead. Right. If you're reacting to them, mm -hmm. you're behind. Super simple, right? So we absolutely want them reacting to yeah. us. So the way we approach is, and we always pair them. Like there's no night where we just go, tonight we're going to do Shomenuchi, Ikkyo, Arimi, the mm -hmm. end. We mm -hmm. always pair them because we, ought, we want it to be forefront in your mind is when you're ahead, you can do Arimi. Mm -hmm. But if you're behind, you can't do Arimi, you're going to have a collision. And that's where the Aikido part comes in, right? Like we mm -hmm. want to avoid the collision. Right. Well, how do we avoid the collision? You tend con. Right. And, and then, you know, there's a variable in there too that, I, that I've come across in my own training, which is like, let's say I want to do a straight up Arimi. No Tenkan, mm -hmm. just Arimi. And I'm uh -huh. doing it against somebody who's 80 pounds heavier than I am. I'm kind of an idiot. Uh, <laughs> even though I may move first, the weight difference is going to have something to play, uh, something to say about that. Same way, if I've got 30 pounds on somebody, I can use Arimi and it doesn't matter if my timing is a little off because I'll have enough weight to go through them. I'll Seagal them, you know, basically. Yeah. yeah. Know, and just blow right through because I can. And I don't think that that's invalid. I think if anything, it's totally pragmatic and realistic. Know when you can use a tool and know when you shouldn't use a tool. Yeah. You know, know when it's going to be risky and know when it's, you know, you've, you've got everything you need to make it work correct correctly. Yeah, that variable doesn't exist for me because I'm, I'm five six on my best day, so that pretty much have never occurred to me that oh, I. Oh, you never know when that. you get a couple of Girl Scouts coming after you. You know, that could. Happen. Oh man, I teach kids and like they're the meanest. Like they'll. they'll oh yeah. Get, you learn a lot about being behind in timing mm -hmm. when you're sparring like seven year olds, right? And sure. you're going, I'll, I'll just ten come, and they're just relentlessly coming at you. You're like, that's oh, yeah. harder than it looks, right? You know, because I remember having a very high strength to, to weight ratio, uh, you know, those because kids have got that they're much stronger than their, their size. Yes. Um, you know, I remember being able to do 65 uh, sit ups in a minute, you know, forget about that. That, that was, yeah. you know, when I was in, <laughs> in kindergarten and, you know, first grade. But um, so you can't, you know, take that level of rigor uh, lightly. Um, but you're right. I mean, and everything is going to have that that eyeing up. And this is something that I think people get, even Aikido practitioners get as they go along, which is, okay, I've got to modify my technique if my opponent is really big or is much taller than I am, or even much shorter than I am. In fact, I have a student 
he has his two daughters that are students. And I'm like, you're going to hate me today because you're going to be working on Shionaga and you got to yep. get under their shoulder. And, uh, you know, had to show him about going to a knee because he had to go down that far. If he didn't do that, they'd spin and, yep. you know, come right out of it. Um, and I think this is one of those things that, that also crosses over into the, the missing part is assuming that a any given technique will work against everybody in any situation. And that is not true. But teaching that, you know, there are certain techniques which work great when you have a size disadvantage or a size advantage even. Um, and I, I don't know if I'd say this is missing. I'd say some, some practitioners realize those differences and others kind of have the expectation, well, every, every technique should work against anybody. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of the, uh, a problem when you, you, you think about your technique in terms of paired kata only or demo Aikido only, that every technique should be able to work against anybody. And because in all fairness, if all you do is demo Aikido, then it does work every time. Exactly. <laughs> Perfectly, right? So exactly. that is your experience. Why wouldn't you think that if right. every time you do it, your uke takes this phenomenally beautiful, you know, and again, if you're doing demo Aikido, then it did work. Mm -hmm. it, it, it fulfilled the function of what that was trying to do. Right. Um, and I guess maybe here's where we could jump back to that. Where did Aikido start to go wrong? And I think in film, even go, going back to Morahai or Shioda, there are some very dubious ukings things going on there that it looks like the UKs may want to make sure they don't let their sensei look bad and that they're complying and being, you know, good UKs, good demo UKs, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I'm sure it, this comes across and I've, I've even felt this myself where, okay, the instructor isn't able to do a throw because I didn't play along and was complacent enough. Therefore he'll look bad if there's anybody out from, from outside the art, it'll make my art look bad. There's a whole lot of pressure that goes on there to see the performance go, go along well. And, you know, I felt that and, and succumbed to it. I, I must admit, I won't stand, you know, won't be a bad uke just because, you know, I'm in a position where I could stop a technique. That's really not, not cool. However, over the long term that practice can, I think, lead to weakness in terms of nage. Uh, it can lead to sloppier technique or ineffective technique. And if anything, we've seen that snowball of ineffective technique get bigger and bigger and bigger as it's been rolling down the hill of time. Yeah, I, I think it's very clear to me that during the Osensei's time and probably before, and probably well before, mm -hmm. that there is there was probably a side of everyone's martial art that was probably reserved as um, demo mm -hmm. version, right? Because sure. we, we see this documented where people were going like, we were, you know, you'll hear go, we were going to go demo for the prince here, or we were going to go demo for the admiral. And, the, and there was almost this talk of like, that's a subset of the art. Right. You know what I mean? Now, yeah. when I was coming up with martial arts and probably, and you know, we're of the same generation. So you saw the same thing. In martial arts, you had demo teams. Mm -hmm. Like that's an aspect of the art, right? We have right. the martial art over here, and you guys, what you're going to do is we're going to send you to festivals and sure. carnivals. I'm sure it's a lot like the Marine Corps drill team with the rifle spinning and the whole deal. Yes. Like that's all they do. You know? Yes, yeah, but that's, that's a wonderful like uh, analogy because at no point does anyone think the Marines are going to be in the middle of Afghanistan flipping rifles <laughs> right. around in formation. Like we know that's not right. Exactly. You know, 
and we can and also would... appreciate those those are probably not the best riflemen in the marine corps yeah they can they spend all their time flipping and marching and polishing buttons that doesn't make them necessarily the best sniper or you know machine gunner or whatever nor would we want that sniper trying to spin you know what I'm right. saying? yeah you're exactly <laughs> right, right. They're exactly. a subset. It's a, it was a subset. And what wound up happening was that subset, I, I'm not a historian, but what it looks like to me is that subset became the art. Right. And when the subset became the art, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that unless you don't know that's what happened. Right. If you, if you kept going, well, no, this is, the, this is the martial art. And at no point did you realize that you were spinning rifles right. and that that wasn't going to work against somebody shooting at you. Yep. Now we have a problem, you know? Exactly. So I... I, I I think that that's a large portion of it. Um, and I know that for a fact too, because one of the big revelations we, we had at our Academy was um, the martial edge from Aikido started to get lost because we spent so much time on the aesthetic, which is exactly what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. I, I was at a workshop one time and uh, I had a friend of mine introduce me to another instructor who had this really great uh, way of, uh, if you were doing a Riminagi on somebody and their arms were in tight, mm-hmm. how to get them to, to rotate around. It was really okay. clever, really well done. He like right. hooked his elbow into the crook and okay. dropped his weight and used it. It was wonderful. I really liked it. And I was on the plane back home when it hit me. I was like, wait a second. So I'm behind this guy and I'm going to spin him around. So he's looking at me. It, and then for the first time it struck me, we are devoting time to give up superior positions, devoting time and research and R and D to go like, how this guy won't spin around. How do I get him to spin around? And mm-hmm. at no point did we stop and go like, why would we want them to spin around? Like right. if I'm behind this guy, I can do anything to this best guy. thing. You best know? place for you to be. It's, it's absolutely the best place. But what happened was the aesthetic started to take over and we spent time figuring out how to enhance the aesthetic. And we, we missed out that like, Oh no, like we're in a really good spot here. Like this is, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then before long, you know, that would, that kind of snowballed into going, well, if someone's grabbing Katatori and I go down and I move them into Ikkyo, well, shouldn't my first stop actually be taking them to a Hijitoshi, just dropping them to the ground? Mm-hmm. I mean, wouldn't that be faster? And then you realize, okay, but what if that fails? Well, then the Ikkyo is there. And that kind of just led to this snowball where we went, Aikido's really only got like three things. It's like you jab the guy's face into the ground from up here. Mm-hmm. You, if you're lucky, you do it from the back. You know, if, you, if right. you're back there, um, you, you leverage them to the ground. And like, that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Everything else is when those things don't function. Sure. When those things fail, well, now I have to take them into a Nikyo. Um, but there's no other martial art on the planet where they w- would say, well, if they grab you on the shoulder, what you're going to do is you're going to take them off balance, but you're not going to throw them. And then you're going to twist their wrist, and then you're going to drop. Like, those are things that you're doing. I mean, that's the fight. You're, you're fighting. You're fighting for what something that went south, you know. And uh, that you're, really, not, you're not playing with your food. You don't want to You don't exactly. have to last for 30 seconds as you're playing around with them. You want it done and, done and over with. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, when we do um, almost any technique, we always try to spot – is there an earlier point in this technique which when another technique exists? Mm. And then we do that technique first. And then we go, okay, now failing that, this thing kind of manifests okay. itself. And that's really helped us to monitor, make sure we're like not going just through a bunch of a, a, a motions for the aesthetic and really taking the time to go like, 
was there something here? Were we in a good spot here? Or did we, are we abandoning a good spot just to get to this other thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a process, but it's a fun process, you know? Yeah, it is. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, that, that whole idea of the subset of the art, because as you were talking about that, it occurred to me there's a second subset that has also exploded as big as pursuing the aesthetic, and that is the internal. And I think that mm. Tohei, if anybody was probably at the lead, the point of the spear in terms of developing Aikido from an internal standpoint, it was Tohei. And there are others that have followed that have gone deep, deep, deep into how do you internally connect with subtle motions and movements where, yeah, that a lot of those connections certainly have uh, a practical expression, but for the most part, I'd say probably 60 to 80%, a lot of them have kind of turned into parlor tricks where you Mm -hmm. can, you know, play around with internal alignment and connection and, and spend a whole you know, hours upon hours training where you haven't actually done anything martial, you're just practicing these connection drills and balance drills and, and, and the internal aspects. And I'm certainly not saying that, that internal work is wasted time, but it's a question of, because it really does come down to if you have superb control over your body, you need to have an understanding of what's going on internally. Mm-hmm. However, that can't be hundred percent or 90% of your martial art training because you're missing out on all the other stuff. And one of the witches you touched on earlier in the conversation, which was the knowledge of what your opponent is doing. And this is where if any, anything was, I think, uh, something missing from Aikido, which is a really good understanding of your attacker and their body, how it's moving, how you read their movement, how you read their intent, and how you adjust to it. Um, as a competitor, I've run into people who have, who are decent technicians, not great, but they are great fighters because they can read their opponents Mm -hmm. really, really well and control them and influence them without just by leading and by using Mm -hmm. pressure. And uh, I think you described that, that uh, thing when we're talking about the Yokoman in terms of pressure, that's something that is felt when you start closing into range on me and you can, with a twitch, you can hit me. I feel tremendous pressure and I need to manage that. I need to make you feel pressure, not feel your pressure uh, on me. But those people that have gotten to be really, really good. And I, I from what I've seen of the film of, of Morahai, I think he had that. He had that incredible ability to read motion and intent and all the stuff that goes with an attacker coming to him. And um, mind you, that's a very hard thing to spot. And I'm not going to decisively say that, yes, he absolutely had it. But from all accounts of the people that were there and have felt it, they said, yes, it seemed like he was always ahead of time because he he could read that so well. And that's what a great martial artist can do, even though they might not be, you know, extremely strong, extremely quick, extremely athletic, or even uh, technically very precise. You know, you can be kind of sloppy, but when you know exactly where your where your attacker, or your opponent is going to be in a half second, it's almost like you've warped time. You know, you're controlling a great thing. I, I you know, we come through Tohei's line, you and I. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so we have. I I have these like kind of rose colored glasses in a way. I mean, I know that I do, but I've read this article or an interview recently, and a guy was like, "Man, Tohei's Aikido was ugly." 
but he yeah. was so powerful. And I never thought of Aikido as Tohei's Aikido was ugly. I, mm-hmm. I always thought it was, but then if you do compare it to his contemporaries, mm-hmm. there is kind of a meat and potatoes quality to it. Sure. You know, it's just, yeah. boom, I'm here now. Oh, and yep. now I'm over here. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Even without that aesthetic or without the precision, mm-hmm. um, he just knew how to move his body. And yeah. if you made contact with it, you're going for the ride. Right you now. Uh, but I do want to back up to this other thing too you're talking about of, of the internal. Mm-hmm. Um, see, Takeda took that into account in Daitoru because mm-hmm. he had three different substyles to Daitoru, as far as I know. And I'm not a Daitoru guy, so mm-hmm. feel free to correct me, guys, in the comments or, or whatever. But, you know, they had the jujitsu, which is uh, exactly like it sounds the, the, the body manipulation, the striking, uh, all of that. Then he had Aiki, which was the body work. And then he had Aiki Jiu-Jitsu, which is when you combine those two elements together. So what you're talking about is somebody who's taken one third of that, set it over here and decided to, to devote all their time to it. And I don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, mm-hmm. as long as you understand that you're missing the other two parts. Right. Uh, and then that's I think where, you, yeah, being from the Tohei line and getting things, you know, like the unbendable arm stuff, mm-hmm. which I... I when, he, when I see it displayed or I see a video of it, it definitely looks like a parlor trick. But I have gotten repeated results with many students being able to, to say, here's the difference of how your body manages applying strength mm-hmm. in, by a, in a vector in a way that's easier to get good results. And they all have been able to do it. So I mm-hmm. don't think, you know, it's necess- it can be a parlor trick the way you present it. And I think as I heard this story, uh, within the last few years, actually, that Tohei back in the late 60s or early 70s, I guess, had, was doing a demonstration uh, among a bunch of people who they weren't really interested in the martial art part, but they liked the key demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And they're like, can we get more of that? And I'm sure going back to, you know, where did, where did things start to drift off the track, which is could be as much as an instructor, in this case, Tohei, just saying, if this is what you're interested in, yes, I will give you more of that. It, mm-hmm. It's not that Tohei was you know, a bad guy or, or crazy or anything like that. It was just, he wanted to, to accommodate the interest of particular people who were, were curious about it and wanted more of it. Um, you know, I think as we look back where it wound up going was probably not, not a very good place in terms of a martial art. Um, and I think that that's where, you know, for example, you know, the Japanese tea ceremony for, you can sit for a four hour ceremony and it has nothing to do with drinking tea or making tea. Mm -hmm. It's, it's got, it's a life of its own in a whole different realm. And I think that with the, with the internal work, uh, it has kind of done that same thing. And I wonder if Aikido generally is headed that same direction. It's turning itself into something completely different based on just shifting interests and, you know, who knows what, um, and, and, practitioners or instructors or organizations catering to what they think is an interest in you know who knows whether it's a, a, a society or whether it's an aesthetic based like cosplay thing where you, know, you can dress up like samurai and swing swords around or you know whatever um so i think that's where we if we identify what's missing from the martial art part just so that the the martial part of aikido doesn't get forgotten or left behind like that's my, really my only concern. I, if people want to play samurai dress up, that's cool. I mean, I, I dig that part, yeah. but I don't want to see the, 
the the martial part of aikido get lost to time just because of the this other evolution well i think one of the things that we can i, I think if martial application is of interest to your school mm-hmm. and i guess you, i think you hit it we really if your students came in tomorrow and said hey we're really done with the fighting stuff can you just like show us some more you would have a, huff, a tough decision you know yeah. in terms of like how, how do do i just tell all of you guys get out i'll start over or do you say well right. yeah we know how to do some of that you know or mm-hmm. it, it would be tough but if your academy or your club says we want a martially viable aikido which we know existed mm-hmm. then i think the first thing you have to do is go like all right we need to really examine the ukeme and, and know what what's happening there okay we need to examine like what the uke can do to us at different parts and then the way we've accomplished that is we break everything down into really small parts which is in our dna because that's what tohei did he took these these forms and broke them into isolated solo exercises so for example when we do um like uh so so shomenichi ikkyo when we're initiating for example Mm -hmm. we'll actually do the form as it's classically taught Mm -hmm. exactly as, as as i learned it in then we apply it to a drill where we'll be moving around kind of at a boxing range and we'll kind of just be kind of slap boxing a little bit just so our hands are up. And then at a certain point, Nage shoots forward with an intimidate of the face. Mm-hmm. And then Uke can react however they want. They can back out, they can cover, they can just stand there and get hit in the face. Like, and at that point you go like, all right, you do that for a round. You do that for a lot of rounds. You start to, see what Arimi is supposed to feel like outside of the form. Mm-hmm. But by that same token, you could do it where the other guy goes first. And you're like, well, you have to Tenkan. Because if I just stick my hand up and cover, I'm going to be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But if I cover in Tenkan, oh, I'm fine. My structure stays the same. So uh, we're using, again, Ian Abernathy's method, where we go to the solo training, the kata, which for us is partnered. Then we look at all the variations, which Aikido is really good at. Like, we're really good at variations. Like, this is one way to do it. And here's 10 other ways that might manifest. Sure. But then the part that's missing that we don't cover is Ian's fourth level, which is now putting it against um, live energy. Mm. Like we're not great at that. And so really our process the past few years has been finding drills to do that. Mm-hmm. And the, the best way that we found is isolate little bitty things and then put those to live, to live energy. And we've had really good success. That way we're not getting rid of the kata which is, I think, central to the blueprint of Aikido. Mm-hmm. Uh, but without forsaking the live training, which is crucial to the, the martial aspect of it. So well, that, I think that if, as process. we look to different arts that just across the board, even with things like wrestling, they do the same process. We're like, okay, we're mm-hmm. going to work on one. Here's a start position, one particular move or counter. Let's just work that a little bit in edible chunks. And then, then you build it into, all right, now we're going to work this into live play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember Joe Tambu talking about the importance of having that play part at yes. the end. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not a heavy duty competition. It's now it's a free form playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you look at two puppies or two kittens that are wrestling around, same kind of thing, you're just playing around, you know, it's, it's not intense. It doesn't have to cause injury. You're actually learning a lot more when you don't, bring yourself into the, the that zone of scary um absolutely where you're yeah, learning how, how we... the bodies play um 
you know, and, and I think the, that's actually a good thing um, to, to not say, all right, we're going to turn the lights out. We're going to crank up some heavy metal music. We're going to, now it's going to be go time and, and, you know, half the people are going to walk out of here injured, if not more, like that's not a way to, to practice live. Just, it's just not viable. Yeah. Um, I, I really think if you look at guys who, who are really good at this stuff, like your Chad Lyman's and your uh, Burton Richardson and uh, guys like that, like they go slow. Yeah. It's super controlled, mm-hmm. but there is an element of unpredictability to it. Right. And I think that was really hard for Aikido people because look, when I, I can only speak for myself. When I was coming up, I started in 92. So kickboxing and boxing reign supreme. You know, boxing for popular culture, kickboxing for the martial culture, right? And so for us, it was like, well, it's either we do what we're doing or we spar like them. And we're like, but if we spar like them, that's, we're not, we're not going to be able to do what we're doing. So I guess we don't spar, you know, I, but if we'd had like, like you said, what, if wrestling had been more of a presence, if we had more availability to that, I think we would have been better off because we would have said like, oh, like here's the arm drag, right? Like, let's just do that. Let's just spend time playing around until we get the arm drag. Well, that's all we try to do is get to the back. You know, so that's a wonderful little tool and drill thing that we can break down. And the more I think we find that. I'm glad you brought up the arm drag because about, I don't know, a couple of two years ago, I started playing with it Mm -hmm. and I just got to love it so much. And it integrates with Aikido so well that I just teach it to all of my students and get them to the point where it's like automatic because you connect so well, you set up all kinds of stuff from, you know, 10, Remy. Uh, Riminage Tenkans, you know, up to Zemponage's er- everything. I shouldn't say everything, but so much happens that's good from being able to do a decent arm drag. And it's, it, you can do it from almost every attack. Like, and I would say Aikido practitioners consider that an arm drag is missing from Aikido. Like it needs to be there. It, it abides by everything that Aikido is about where you're making, you're connecting with your attacker you're taking their posture, you're getting into a superior position. It, it nails, it checks all of those off. Yes. That was one of the very bang, first bang, bang, things bang, bang. that we pulled it from outside. Harm the other yeah. person. There's no, um, you know, there's no injury that happens with it. You're in total control of their body or pretty close. Like, it's just, it's such an Aikido thing. Like go, it, go right now and just go look into arm drag and start playing with it and see how well it integrates with your Aikido. That That's actually a really good point as to why you must have a the layered approaches work so well for us because i would argue aikido's always had an arm drag in it sure any and here's how i'd say anytime there's like a yokelman or something like that and we 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 blend and we catch and we cross the body Mm -hmm. the line is the same so what we failed is we never checked variations right well what are the variations of that movement and then because we never had the variations we said well we never added the live training to it either mm-hmm. you know so but it, I, I, that's how I, I would sure if you're a traditional aikidoka you, you know go what, and here's arm drag mm-hmm. and now play with it you know right and i'm glad you brought that up because one thing that i found in integrating the arm drag into live play which is one little it's kind of minor but it's not minor and that is when you get done with the pass, because we've all done that thing where mm-hmm. you, you deflect and you pass into the other elbow. 
is once you pass into that hand, you bring that hand to your hip. You do that and you will jack up Uke's footwork. You will plant their weight on a foot. Mm -hmm. it, it's like they're in mud now. They, it yep. slows their footwork down. Well, if you can kind of play with your food a little bit, you don't have to anchor like that. But mm -hmm. when you do, I mean, holy cow, you really take control of Uke. Slow everything down for them. You're in a great position. You buy yourself time to, to do, you know, decide what technique you want to do next. Um, just that one little ingredient really should be explored because it, it's such a great ingredient. And um, if you are of a, a school that does any Aiki Taiso at all, I can almost guarantee you, you start your class going like this. <laughs> right. And it's like, you don't even yeah, it's have exactly to, that motion. It's that it's, it, I have them here and you go, Whoo, and then you're, you're back there. Right. Yep. So it's one of those things where you don't even have to go. Uh, I'm going to start pulling things from out here and they're not really going to fit the art. In fact, I recommend find things that fit the art. Right. It, go do things that are different and let them be different, but there are going to be some things that you find that go like, this is just an, a Funakogi application. Mm -hmm. right? right. Because if all Funakogi is to you is somebody grabbing your arms, like that's a very narrow exercise. We probably shouldn't do that every class. Okay. Mm -hmm. But if it teaches you how to move your body so that you can move the UK's body, that's a really good exercise. And then you go, well, what's an application of Funakogi? Well, you arm drag is a wonderful, yeah. wonderful application. And, and I found it works for, yeah. you know, I have students that I outweigh by 60 pounds that have pulled me off my feet with it. Like yeah, it's that powerful. It's, mm -hmm. It is not like just a, ah, it kind of works if you're in the same weight class. Because there's some, there's some technique where if you're out, outweighed by quite a bit, ah, just don't even do something else, mm -hmm. do something reliable. Yeah. And that arm drag is right up there uh, for that. And in fact, the other thing that I like about it, and this plays back into your, your timing thing is you can initiate the contact into an you arm can. drag. You do not have to wait for that arm to come to you to, in order to initiate it. Um, you know, and even from like a, like a bouncer's escort where they put their hand behind the elbow, you can very quickly pull that right into a, a very short, quick and dirty arm drag. Absolutely. You can take yeah. control again, without being violent, not, not hurt anybody, just like you're wrapping them up. And, um, so that's, that's definitely a tip of the day. Go to yeah. arm drag. Well, and that's a good example of how, like, we're, we're talking about a technique right now. Cause we like techniques cause we're geeks and we, and we like that stuff. Yeah. But really what we're saying is if you, if you're worried about the martial side, feel free to look outside of it, mm -hmm. but look at it through a lens of what's Aikido trying to accomplish. Cause you're an Aikido practitioner, mm -hmm. you're an Aikidoka. So, look through that mm -hmm. but then step out of that that role and go well what are other people are they checking the same box as we are oh they are and how are they doing it well that's how and then once you start to put all those things into a bowl you know the one thing that and i've told this before sosa sensei was so good at was finding things that were not aikido and within six months they were aikido mm -hmm. it wasn't just finding a bunch of stuff out there it I, I don't think the solution to Aikido's martial problem is just taking some boxing, taking some cry, right. take a mishmash. Take some, I don't think that. Right. I, I, I think what it is is looking at all those things and going, mm -hmm. what there fits what we do. And at a certain point, you, you will have to acknowledge, like, well, okay, we don't do that. Aikido, like, right. we're not we're not great at pugilism and that's never going to be in the system. Sure. You know, like that's, you know, just it's funny you mentioned that because the next sentence I wanted to say is I've found Aikido in pugilism. Really? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know and, Tell and, me about that. I want to hear about that. Here's, and here's where I found it. 
it's, it helps solve the problem of how do I close range on somebody who's raining blows into my head and how do I do it efficiently without committing my hands? Because if you look at pugilism and boxing, which boxing came from pugilism, you look at some of the best evasion footwork there is bar none, especially for closing range and doing it at angles that need to happen. Now, of course you take out punching with your knuckles into somebody's face. However, a shift with a head slip to a shomanate, that's pugilism all day long. Yeah. Or coming up to the outside of the arm to turn the head, you know, for a sayunage, for example, like the entries are, are the same. As you're saying this, I'm completely going like, oh, what was I even talking about? Because you're right. I mean, Tosa <laughs> Sensei, like what we would do, we would like slip hooks yeah. and go into chokes and go into Riminaya. So yeah. yeah I mean, they, and I, they call boxing the sweet science because it, in my opinion, it, it has refined human combat really, really well and tested it in, in a ring. It's tested it in live fire. So we, it, it should not just be dismissed as being, oh, it's brutal or it's, uh, you know, uh, simple. It's not simple. And, but the shifting footwork, like I've used the drop step. I teach that to every student. It's the fastest way off the line with the least amount of movement period. And it brings all of your power with you. In fact, if you did Funakogi and you started from an even stance, instead of one foot in front of the other, you'd be doing the drop step. Like hmm. that, that's flat out right from Jack Dempsey, right from boxing, tremendous power. Well, see, then this would be my other tip then is talk to people because yeah. you're going to have blind spots mm-hmm. that your friends might not have. Right. Or, you know, if I've, I've investigated something that mm-hmm. you haven't and vice versa, and then sure. we get, we have a better picture of what Aikido can be. So yeah, yeah those would be my big, my big two takeaway. Well, that's only one big takeaway. Talk to people, yes. look outside your own stuff, mm-hmm. see what's out there. Um, there, there's that's the one thing I've yet to train with a martial artist and I'll say this pretty blanket all this is anecdote that doesn't have something cool that I can steal mm-hmm. you know now the only times that I've I've had some trouble finding it is when I'm dealing with somebody or I'm training with somebody or working with them that they're so narrowly sport focused that they're overlooking a major problem that self-defense it needs to take into account mm-hmm. um you know, and, and I would say that, that going onto your back is a big one and not even from the multiple opponents, but you can do sport jujitsu like that because so many things have been removed, uh, that, that are not legal in terms of attacking. Um, and that's just one example. I'm not picking on sport jujitsu because it has a lot to offer, but when you start to overlook, you know, getting need in the nuts, for example, um, that can be a bit of a problem. And so as I do the cross training, or I, I love playing around with different martial artists and love sharing because it's always a two-way street and it's just a fantastic experience. But um, it's only when the, well, yeah, that's really cool, but I can't use that in my art. And you start to see how narrowly defined their art is to them. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a, like a mirror you want to reflect and say, is, am I limiting my understanding of an art by saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to train with this. I don't want to play with that. That doesn't look interesting to me. And like, okay, well then where, where is your narrow little path that you're walking? And is it too narrow? Like, could you explore other things that could be useful? And, and it took me, admittedly, it took me a while in training pugilism to start to see the parallels. But boy, when they, they started coming out, it was like these huge light bulb moments kept going like wow i see where this is 
how this is useful. But and to clarify my position, yeah. again, my teacher was a boxer. And so yeah. I absolutely saw the, the sure. merit of it. Mm -hmm. I, I think what I'm saying is at a certain point, you realize I'm not going to be able to take one of my Aikido students and put them in a, an amateur boxing tournament. Oh, hell no. no. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, so no way. Like at a certain point, you have to realize you can't do everything. Yep. Great. So I guess that's really where I'm coming from. Sure, but sure. to your point, which is even, it's way more important than my point, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean because that can't happen, we shouldn't be looking at boxing. Right. We should be looking at boxing, right? Because there's going to be things that we can pull from that. Absolutely. Put in our blender and, mm -hmm. and, and help us, you know. Yep. Absolutely. If for no other reason than when we put Aikido versus a jab cross, like we're not, you know, we're not doing that. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and a couple of years ago, I got to spar with, a, with a, an active uh, amateur MMA fighter. And he had a wrestling and a boxing background. So we separated our training. Like, okay, let's do some groundwork and grappling. And then we split it off. Let's put on some gloves and let's do some boxing. And I'm cool. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking, man, I'm going to get killed. I'm like, you know, but, I, and I had to tell him like, well, what I've been training to do, I don't really know the box, all the boxing rules. So if I do something that's a little weird, it's not personal and I'm not yeah. getting, you know, competitive or anything, but basically I was using head covers and just basically being careful not being completely defensive and running away, but, you know, using slips and whatnot. And, you know, I got done and, and I said, well, you know, how did you think I did? Cause I felt like I protected myself pretty well. He, obviously he, you know, if the, he turned it on, I'm sure he would have killed me. Sure. Um, you know, and he was going, we were going about 60% intensity, I would say 50, 60%, uh, you know, but I was trying to hit him and he was trying to hit me. And he said, you know, you're, you're hard to hit. I, I would have to work to, to get, get past that. And that, a, it made me feel pretty good because, I'm, you know, this dude was an active fighter, right. but it also made me take stock of, well, what do I want as a martial artist? Like, I would just like to be difficult to hit, like, mm -hmm. and I don't and I want my students to be difficult to hit in an MMA yeah. fight against a professional or semi-professional fighter. I would just like to make it hard for that somebody swinging at me who's quicker and maybe smarter than I am, you know, or more uh, boxing savvy that would have a, a, a tough time landing a good shot on me and of course my training i always want to be better than i am i'm always every time i go in i want to all right what can i improve what can i do but i'm not obsessing because i can't take out mike tyson in a fight like right. that's that's going way above and beyond <laughs> but i also don't want somebody who boxed for six months to completely roll over me because i have no idea how to deal with them and I, this is where i i attach to you know sosa's intent with his bringing his boxing into aikido because he saw that, you know, there are people that know a little bit about throwing some fists around. And so it should be able to be useful in that venue, not because he would, he wanted to do it in a boxing ring, but somebody that wants to take a slug at you, you have to have an answer for that. Well, one of the things about Sosa Sensei that uh, in that regard was, I really think what it came down to is he was just a, a product of his time and he was a little bit ahead of his time. And he knew that like, if people are watching boxing, because that's what everybody was watching at that time. Mm -hmm. Even if someone didn't know what they were doing, it was very likely you're going to see a jab. You're going to see your cross, right? Right. Um, by 1994 or five, we had a jujitsu expert at our dojo teaching us groundwork, right? Mm -hmm. Like he was that far ahead where he was like, he saw it and he went like, this is going to be something that you will encounter. Mm -hmm. And so we had somebody within our organization come and do a jiu-jitsu seminar. I didn't know it was a jiu-jitsu seminar. Right. We were rolling around on the ground and stuff, but you know, I know now looking back like, oh, 
that's what you know that's what we were doing um and so really we should be products of our time too right mm -hmm. if if these are the things that people are exposed to we don't have to be experts in them but have we at least acknowledged that those exist and do we have any answer for them and i also think it's okay to not have an answer for them if you just say i don't i don't know i think you should probably go do some wrestling sure. or you know i don't know you know what's missing you know what's missing from my keto i'll tell you right now yeah. i don't know that's what's missing from my keto <laughs> yeah. the ability well, no instructor go. wants to appear to diminish their reputation by by not being the guru who has the answer mm -hmm. and but that has to be okay yeah, I mean, if you yeah, look at an absolutely. MMA camp, it's not like one guy teaching Muay Thai, BJJ, right. wrestling. They've got experts in each of these fields, strength and conditioning, nutrition. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we feel the pressure to be no. experts at all facets of combat and life coaches, but we don't need that pressure. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not really well, And I think the, the pressure that, comes you know? from like a perceived demand that yeah. students want to have. They want basically Benny the Jet to be their martial art instructor. Yeah, you know, a world, multiple world champion, undefeated. Like they want the best of the best, and if their instructor isn't the best of the best, then what? Somehow they're not. Are they? Well, like somehow their is, value is diminished. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. And this is kind of a almost plebeian thinking. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you anybody thinks back to their music teacher, their English teacher, you know, were they William Shakespeare? No, but they were able to teach you. Like that's that's the value. Could they part. teach you Shakespeare? Right. Could they could they show you where in the library to go? Like right, that would exactly. be fine, right? Yeah. You they know? didn't need to be the world's they didn't need to be Stephen King or the you know, yeah. one of the world's best writers in order to teach you English and mm -hmm. teach you writing or or you know, that kind of a thing. Um, you know, not to say that each martial art instructor isn't pursuing improving themselves, but and I, I want to address the the one part of your your thing, which was to have an answer. There isn't one right answer. And this is something that I see so many martial artists get caught up in, whether they're prospective martial artists or, or beginners or even advanced ones. You say, well, should I do jujitsu or should I pursue wrestling or should I pursue what, you know, what's the best grappling if I want to be a, gra you know, bring grappling in? Or same thing with punching. Should I do karate? Should I learn boxing? Should I learn, you know, Muay Thai other, or whatever? Yeah, yeah, Wing Chun or Jeet Kune Do or like. <sighs> There isn't one answer. Find an answer that you're happy with pursuing. And you may find that that answer or the one that you went at first, maybe you find another better one later. Maybe you nail it and find one that really works for your, your, your style. I know for me personally, I like the pugilism and the wrestling. They work really well. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that wrestling is better than jujitsu or, 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 or pugilism is better than, than karate just make sure you have an answer. It doesn't have to be the perfect answer. And this is yet another topic that, you know, although it's kind of just comes up with all, all the other topics, perfect is the enemy of the good. Never pursue, give up pursuing good for the fact that it's not perfect. Like you are waiting for the perfect answer to come along at some point later. Um, you know, whether it's grappling, you know, and to get into the endless arguments of this art versus that art, it's just in, it's the, you talk about the biggest waste of time, you know, where people search, search out whether, you know, well, I want to get into grappling and they go on YouTube and find BJJ versus a wrestler. Okay. Which one wins all the time? You know, they're both great. They're both going to teach you. Um, and obviously the learning path is, is going to be constant. It never, it never stops, nor should it. 
when we stop growing, we start dying. And, and that's, I think as a martial artist, as a human being, same, same thing goes. So don't sit on your butt doing nothing, waiting for the perfect answer to roll along. I think that is absolutely correct. As long as we know that we don't have the end all be all answer for our students, I think then we'll still have something to offer them. I think once we feel like this is it, then I think we don't have much to bring to the table to them anymore. You know, and this feathers into the topic from the last podcast, which was just because you can't go a hundred percent intensity with lethal intent in practice that you should not train with some intensity against live, you know, more live opponents to make your training challenging because the more challenging you make your training, the easier it is to perform in for real. When that happens, Mm -hmm. the softer and easier your training is the, the worse it winds up being when you're in, when you're being attacked for real, like the fear is worse. The, the, uh, the physical stuff is worse. Your physical performance is worse, all of that stuff. And I think this is therefore kind of one in the same, almost one in the same conversation is addressing the missing part being the, the play of the live opponent that's trying to overcome you um, or trying to dominate you. And, and I like how you put that, having ukes that get a little bit more, uh, they throw other variables in uh, where, you know, you tell them, okay, well, try to evade the attack or give me a second attack or you know, if you see me start to counter move you because I've started a technique and you have the ability to do something different, you know, throw a reversal or, or change things up on me. And, um, you know, to, to be clear, like when we do that, that's two different drills because the first drill is Aikido, as we all know it, it's the Kata. No. And none, my, for me, the definition of Kata is failure exists, but not because of the UK. Like you might not have the right structure and you might not have the right timing. So the failure does still exist, but it's not because the UK is doing anything to prevent you from doing that technique. But if you progress down that continuum, the next line could go like, if you see me open, you can take a shot. We are now introducing UK based failure, but those are two different drills. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that has ever happened in Aikido is we combine those two teaching methods. And so you have a beginner who's getting punched every time they're not doing things oh, yeah. perfectly. And you go like, how do you expect that dude to get it? You right. know, but if you do it, all it takes is a gap of 30 seconds. Round one, no UK-based failure. Round two, UK-based failure. By a minute and a half later, that student is going to be able to handle both. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when you combine them both like that, and well, if you don't exactly have my center, I'm just going to be a rock. Right. Like it's not, it's not going to be good guys, you know, and, and we lose students and Mm -hmm. there's, there's no learning endeavor that I think functions really well that way. I I don't think so. You know, and that's, it's funny because with my students, I've flushed out or I am flushing out how, how to get them to identify. And it's kind of identify the bad UK, the one who will attack and will extend their, their, their body in earnest like they're trying to punch through you and then the one who will stop the body and then just extend the arm and they've halted their energy and it's i remember a long long time ago you know being frustrated with people that would do that and you know i'd heard other uh other instances of ukes who would basically get chewed out for for not being good ukes and not mm-hmm. overextending all the time but i had to realize like 
a real attacker might hesitate on you. They might only stop their body or might stop their body and only extend a hand. Maybe it was, you looked like it was going to be a punch, but they decided it was going to be a grab instead, or maybe they're just a really big person and they will never extend Mm -hmm. because somebody who's really overweight or, you know, big, they don't tend to trust their knees too well. And they don't like leaning Mm because it takes a lot of muscle to hold that weight up. The best thing to do is to say, I'm as Nage, you, okay, do whatever you want. I will have an answer for, for whatever it is you decide to do. If you decide to change your motion or direction, I can track it. I can follow it and I can take advantage of it. If you stop, I know how to deal with that too. Um, just for that, you know, you never want to basically chew on Uke for being bad in, or, or expecting a certain level of choreography. Mm-hmm. You know, granted, when you start out with those katas, you do have to say, okay, here's the roadmap. Here's, here's what we're going to do to get things started. And no, you shouldn't just stand there and throw an arm out because, you know, especially when you're out of range, because there, there are bad UK skills for sure. But uh, eventually we want to get to Nage can deal with any variable, you know, or any circumstance. It shouldn't be limited. I, th- I think an instructor can vary it as much as they are comfortable with, as long as the, as long as the drill the confines of the drill have been well established. I right. think you can do anything. I really do. I, I really, as long as everybody knows what's supposed to happen and what the, the, the struggle that we had in Aikido was the only kind of training we really did was the kata training. Mm-hmm. We tried to cram every other type of training modality into that training modality. Right. And that would change depending on the UK you were with. Mm-hmm. So on a given night, you're doing six different drills but none of them were the ones you thought you'd signed up for right that night and right that, and that's a like a coaching instructor it's a coaching issue thing. yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah absolutely so dude i know we could do this i know i was gonna, gonna say, let's let's start to wrap her up here because i know it's been a little over an hour um yeah but this has been a great conversation i think uh always yeah we always have a good time getting together and chatting and you know i i do want to just wrap up with the point of even though we're looking at the questions of what is Aikido missing or, or where did it go off track? I really do like the, uh, the Japanese approach of it's not about finding somebody to blame. It's about let's identify the problem and let's figure out a way to fix it. Um, you know, and that, that you can identify like, where does a problem come in or, or, or kind of who is overseeing it. But the, the goal is, all right, how are we going to address this? How are we going to fix it? Not to just say, well, it's so-and-so's fault or anything like that. And of course, we love the art. We love the training. And we, we w- would like to see at least this aspect of it preserved. Uh, and I think enhanced. Uh, I will be honest and say, I think Aikido generally has lost a lot of ground. And there's, you know, we can, by having these conversations and, and addressing the problems and trying to fix them, we can catch up. We can bring this back into at least a portion of it where, you know, the people that know that Aikido is being trained this way and can see it and can sample it can say, yeah, that they really got something with that art. It's, it is, you know, a good legacy that, that more Hayawashiba left that's still intact. Um, well, last time I was on your podcast, I had some, uh, some nice people reach out to me after and had some good conversations. So I'll, I'll finish by saying, if anything that Tristan and I talked about kind of kind of said, Hey, I think I might have a solution for that. Or, Hey, here's how we do that at our academy or 
what are you guys talking about at that shoot Tristan a line because that is how Aikido survives is those of us who are like-minded talking to each other. Absolutely. The more we talk to each other and the more we're going like, I have a solution for that problem you guys brought up. And right now it's never been a better time. You could be across the globe and solve a problem that we have here in Texas, you know, or, or vice versa. So you heard anything sounded kind of interesting to you definitely shoot Tristan a line and, and let's start a dialogue. Absolutely. And again, just like I said, there's not only one answer for anything. I mean, we, we will, it's not who's right. Who, you know, it's never going to be a bickering thing or an ego driven type argument. It's just a, let's find what works. And there's many answers uh, out there. So yeah, it's really cool that we have this ability to communicate. And um, even for you listeners, we're communicating with you. If you write us a note or, or, you know, make your own video or however you want to do it, share something that, that is the good idea, because that, that is how Aikido is going to flourish into the future. Tristan, thank you so much, man. This is thank you, Oliver. It's been, as usual, great to have you on. Thanks, sir. But take care. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Stay tuned for more episodes. I've got some great stuff on the way very soon. In the meantime, enjoy your training.